Welcome all to Where the Needle Lands, a podcast series on analytics and the business of analytics, covering the broad spectrum from BI to AI. Where the Needle Lands questions how analytics transforms companies, economies, nations, and societies. A co-hosted show by Geraldine Magnier and myself, Mahima Batra, where we speak with powerful, worthy, and influential leaders. On today's show, we speak with Patrick White, an expert in the use of embracing innovation and technological change for enhancing future development and expansion. Patrick White is advisor to West Park Shannon, chairman to Collins McNicholas Recruitment and HR Services. Patrick is also the former MD of IDA Ireland. So is no stranger to embracing change to advance growth economically and sectorally. He has seen the use of analytics and AI in state, semi-state and private companies. So Patrick has had an eagle eye on how Ireland has used analytics in many facets over the last 40 years of his career. Porik, very welcome to the show today. Thank you for being here. You're a Leitrim man. Yes, I'm a native of North Leitrim uh, and uh, in an area very often people write off or think poor Leitrim, but uh, <laughs> it has had a profoundly formative influence on me okay. because of the evidence of the need for employment and viable economic um, future in, in, in the rural areas of Ireland. Yes. So, in fact, uh, I was so passionate about that when I came to Dublin that I, I think I talked myself into a job in the IDA, uh, which was 100% fit with that passion, which was to develop the very first set of regional industrial plans ever in Ireland, where the IDA set out to bring jobs to the people. That was the name of the yeah. of our of our document. Uh, what year was this, Porter? That was in 1973. Okay. We developed a pioneering set of regional plans, 1973 to 1977. And the reason that Allergan and its thousand workers are in Westport today is precisely because of that plan, because that plan led to the buying of an industrial site, the building of an advanced factory, and before that factory was ever finished, even finished, mm. Allergan said, uh, we want to establish there. And and they've grown there over the last uh, decades into yeah. being one of the most successful research-based companies in Ireland. That's over 40 years ago. Yeah. So, Porik is here tonight to talk to us about AI. So, can you talk to us about your knowledge of AI as a strategy and how you see it today? Well, AI, first of all, it embraces many kind of different technologies uh, from robotics, machine learning, predictive analysis. So, there are many subsets in it right up to the desire to almost replicate the human brain, which yes. some researchers are aimed at. But essentially, it's, it's the new battleground of technology for the future. Uh, and I see it actually as this almost where the battleground of the Cold War and technology is going to be fought be- between the great uh, powers as to who will dominate in this technology. I mean, China has laid down a clear aspiration to be the world leader by 2030. The European Union uh, has developed the, uh, an outline of a digital strategy to position the European Union. It's due to be completed this year. Probably with the new commission, it'll, it'll have to be re-looked at. It hasn't really taken off yet. America, America doesn't really have industrial strategy because right. they don't really believe in it. What they do have is companies which are, which are highly ambitious and have the scale. 
to whether it's to develop a space and space X, a satellite, you know, uh, take you to to Mars, yes. um, or Elon Musk uh, with all his ambitions. So. The, the big companies in America, like Microsoft, you know, are pouring fortunes into artificial intelligence. Uh, Microsoft, for example, uh, this year have uh, just given one billion to a company called AI Open to develop artificial general intelligence and to be capable. I mean, the specific objective is that it should be capable of managing their entire cloud system across mm -hmm. globally. It's a, it's a, so they're. The Americans have the companies and they have the money and they have, mm -hmm. if they spot something and they think they become, become global leaders, they have the potential to raise the capital. Ireland has brought out this year, I mean, it's fascinating to me that Ireland brought out future jobs, which actually yes. a very far-seeing document to position mm -hmm. Ireland as a leader in AI and, mm -hmm. and the new technologies. Because it's not sexy, it's kind of gone under the radar. It's critical to Ireland retaining its position as a leader in technologies, both for indigenous industry and also for foreign direct investment. And for example, within it, I mean, there are three sub-strategies, and I don't want to get too technical, but for example, there's a strategy called 4-0 strategy to develop the internet of things, yes. the digital connection of things. There's a digitalization strategy in its own right, and there's to be an AI intelligence strategy. So there's layers in there, and it's designed also to pervade into, say, the funding that the uh, Science Foundation Ireland provides for artificial intelligence. And it will also come in and pervade and be a major feature, and I'm predicting this, in the new IDA five-year plan, which is due to be unveiled uh, early next year. So let's go back a little bit. Ireland right now, it is Dublin. One of the reasons I moved here was because it is considered the Silicon Valley of Europe. So let's talk about your time at IDA and how did it how did Dublin or Ireland come about to be a technological hub in Europe? Well, it's it's a fascinating question, you know, which intrigues me. But nowadays, it's and it's a question of how did Dublin stroke Ireland yes. become that? Because uh, I would, personally was fortunate to join the new IDA Ireland in 1970 when, okay. it, when it became a separate state agency. I was very fortunate to join it in 1970 at its fun, at its very foundation. And bear in mind that uh, Ken Whitaker's famous economic document, Economic Development, was in 1958, just yeah. a decade earlier. And that's laid the foundation because okay. that, was, that was based on sweeping away okay. the 40 years of protectionism, yeah. wiping away the restrictions on, on that you couldn't, a foreigner couldn't own half, more than half of the companies, and reorientating the mm -hmm. entire economic system to export-oriented productive investment. So the IDA effectively was created deliberately yeah. 10 years later to be a master state agency okay. with all the freedom to carry through that philosophy into both, in, at that time, indigenous industry, but particularly foreign investment. And basically... And That's I, a big responsibility was, if it, looking back at it. It, it was, it was yeah. huge. And it started with, with, with a... With a a plain sheet, yeah. Basically, okay. Planning a, the future of the whole country, yeah. yeah. And there was a huge intellectual process that that underpinned it. I mean, there wasn't yeah. there was an element of the pharmaceutical industry in Ireland, but yeah. the idea analysis was that uh, again scanning the world that there was an emerging electronics industry. So, uh, where did you get the data for um, scanning? 
about emerging trends, what's going to happen, what would the future look like? Yeah, there's, there are really two sources uh, within IDA. Mm-hmm. One is that it has got its international network of offices, okay. which are, are like, you, they've got the finger on the pulse in yeah. of where, whether it's in Germany or in the United States or in California. Yes. But the key is that, that it's out ahead of everybody else. Of course, yeah. Because it's engaging with the emerging companies that would be potential investors in Ireland. Yeah. And, in their, and it filters out the ones that have the potential to export. So that's one source. So it, it picks up on the ground faster than any textbook could yeah. what is actually happening. And the other is it's really intellectual, of scanning yeah. intellectually the changes in, in the workforce, the changes in technology, uh, the changes in the economic different country, putting all that together and then specifically moving from targeting, say, the emerging electronics uh, industry. Yeah. For example, IBM in the early 70s was being overtaken by the DEC, what's now DEC, the digital equipment company. There were the whole emergence of mobile personal computers. Yeah. Uh, they were springing up everywhere. Uh, so um, the, the idea then identifies the sectors, yeah. then it identifies the companies within the sectors, and then it said it sent its its hit squad right yeah. <laughs> to Good after a bit of market intelligence to get to them. Yeah. And in those early days, we had remember in one year uh, we had made two and a half thousand presentations to target companies yeah. across Europe and America. And did IDA have independence from the government in terms of decision making? Yes, it does because yeah. its board and its authority. Yeah. In law, has the decisions to make investment decisions up to X million. I mean, okay, it changes okay. over time. The ones that are over a certain level of multi-million go to government. But it has a huge amount, it has huge decision-making. So it it has the intellectual ability to, to decide on of the target course, companies. Yeah. It has the people on the ground to go to target the companies. It has got all the armory in its legislation of finance, training schemes, supporting our arm development, etc. It has won the support of the system, what I call the system in Ireland, the, pub, the, the public of course, yes. and the governments yeah. in a unique way. Yeah. That it's, it's, I think it's fair to say, generally admired. And while the whole basis of promoting foreign investment was uh, controversial in the early stages because it, it conflicted yeah. with the, our strong sense of nationalism, I think that people have now reconciled to that and they've seen that the foreign companies don't rush away when the grants are over. The idea of um, Indigenous is often put up against, we'll say, the multinationals. And Porik, with all due respect to you, I have referred to you behind your back as Mr. Intel. So let's go back to that. Let's talk about the reality of what goes yeah. on behind the scenes because one of the things we talked with you about was Intel coming to Ireland wasn't an overnight. Yeah, coup. I mean, in a way, it's a common sort of uh, opt out or escape clause for people mm-hmm. to say, "Oh well, they're only here because of tax," um, and and partly it comes from across the world. There's a high degree of jealousy of Ireland's success, yeah. but but in the real world, um, what do people look for? First of all, they have to be satisfied that they can function, have an efficient plant and they can get all the skills and all the support and all the the technology and the proper building and services and gas and electricity and phones. (laughs) 
And they have to be satisfied that they actually can make a profit. I mean, yeah. a profit tax is only relevant if you can actually make a profit in the first instance. So they have to be satisfied about all, maybe three or four of those at things. And, and then the fifth one down probably is tax. And then okay. it's comparative because they're, they're narrowing down to maybe two, three, four. And they say, yes, all these countries can actually support our enterprise. Here's the pre-tax profit in all these countries, and here's the after-tax profit, and that's definitely where it comes in. But I mean, again, talking about tax, what's happened? All the other countries have, have all reduced their, yeah. their tax rates, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. And you don't hear anybody telling you that, that Hungary has a 10% corporate yeah. tax rate specifically to attract Very foreign direct investment. Yeah. And it's in the middle of the of the European market. Yes. We're an island on the edge of Europe, yeah. right? Yeah. And, and so we're not a natural, obvious yeah. center for location. But to if I might take yes. the um, Intel example. I mean, Intel in 1989 were selling, they were the most advanced company in the world making microprocessors, which is at the heart, as you know, of the uh, electronic technology. They had a billion dollar sales into Europe. And every agency in the world was saying, you know, my God, if they're sending a billion dollars into Europe, should they have to have a plant in Europe, right? Mm -hmm. So everybody was after them. I mean, idea had, IDEA's way of operating is to patiently establish links year in, year out. Uh, it's a, a, a form of courting with mm. the company. Developing uh, rapport. Developing <laughs> rapport. And I remember being at a long, long dinner somewhere in Silicon Valley, and I think it was Andy Grove or Moore. Uh, where one was was came to it, you know. So they said so they got to know Ireland. It was a huge challenge and a huge prize. A huge challenge because Ireland did not have a large scale manufacturer of wafers or you know microprocessors, okay. uh, silicon wafers. In right, so there was a huge gap because it's a highly scientific. Mm -hmm. The other countries, there's a number of them, including the UK, say, well, we have a semiconductor plant here, you know, so we've proven it. So. Uh, to be fair to Intel, they actually took that risk on yeah. Ireland, and and we, we won out. And this indicates what's at stake and why foreign investment is such an all or nothing. I mean, it's all or nothing. So what does Ireland get? It has, it has some like seven thousand direct employees, twelve yeah, yeah. billion. It was a gateway in, for a lot of other tech companies to come yeah. in. Yes, yes. Yeah. And, but and it became the reference point, the precursor. Yeah. yeah, but it could only have happened again, not, not because of tax, but because Ireland had built up the, the sub-supply services, you know, of the, course, sort of the, ga yeah. the gas installations, the, the construction industry, yeah. the, the, the fitters, the technical people, the transport companies, all these substructures yeah. and sub-supply companies that had been built up to serve the electronic industry in a way, became the, the foundation, as well as, obviously, the, the key people in the universities, people like Professor John Scanlon mm -hmm. of UCD, yeah. you know, who, who were re really heroes or patriots for what they did. I mean, they met these companies day in, day out, night in, night out, to promote Ireland. Mm -hmm. Jerry Rickson down in Cork, I mean, we had won... We had one specialist silicon sort of <laughs> research center. That was Jerry Rickson. <laughs> he was used and abused over the years. All right. right. So that's the way. And, our, and the great thing is that Ireland actually worked together. People cooperated together because in the national interest. Quick question. I think uh, we had talked about one of the examples about ROI in Ireland. It was 21% more than any of the other country. Can you tell us about how IDA and your team discovered that statistic and how helpful it was? We would scan the international economic output to see, could we see something beneficial to Ireland? Yeah. So 
We were looking at this, and the economists there began working at the return on investment in different yeah. countries. And, and they discovered that in the case of Ireland, I mean, it's, it's etched in my memory. It was 21% in Ireland. And the rest of the average in the EU was, it was um, I think, 12%. So we ran an ads, and I still see them with a wee sort of beautiful ad with a pencil circling 21%, you know, and the yeah. <laughs> European average way down here. Yeah. And it was a great line for with the former Taoiseach Albert Reynoldson, who was former Minister of Industry and who was fantastic talking directly to business people. And uh, um, Albert would say, first of all, he said about the tax, you know, we want you to make money. That's why you below tax. Of course. Because today's profit is tomorrow's capital. And Damn on it. that capital, you will make 21% <laughs> return on the capital. It's twice the European average. They're not our figures. Yeah. They're yours. <laughs> they come from the Department of Industry of Commerce of the United States of America. Yeah. And yeah. we used to track those each year. And, so, and, and it was true. It was actually yeah. accurate. How clever, you know? the proposition. <laughs> and using your target market's own research. So nobody could... Uh, over that. Whitaker, when he did develop that FDI um, strategy, would you say that there was a lot of data available at that time? Because really, we're still working off uh, the basic principles of looking out back then, 40, 50 years later. And have you seen how anything in the last few years with technology has helped escalate what he did back then, or IDA back in the 70s? Well, I believe that the foreign investment sector has raised the entire level of management uh, uh, within Ireland in a way that was radically different from our unfortunate past. Because you have to bear in mind that the Irish industrial sector grew up behind protectionism of the 1930s. Uh, It bred a very poor attitude of managerial competence yeah. Our management philosophy. Complacency. So we had a very poor inheritance industrially. I mean, mm. and I profoundly believe mm. that the foreign sector, by bringing in and engaging young Irish managers mm. and showing them the best man, they gave them access to the best, most enlightened, most advanced management philosophies, people philosophies in the world. Mm. Right. So today, if you look at uh, the entire foreign sector, of the managers are Irish, Mm. right? Mm. So we have a pool of managers who have been learned and understand the the best in the world. So I've never seen or accepted that there's a binary choice, foreign industry or Irish industry. I I absolutely have seen that the foreign sector have infused Ireland with a level of management and expertise uh, that we didn't have. There's one thing I'm really intrigued with, um, Podrick, is that your career... It's It's been four decades, right? You are a man that is um, heralding in ways the AI revolution. And yet you actually can speak about it going back a long time ago, while it is the word that is trending at the moment, AI this, AI that. Bring us back to your journey with it and where you are today. Yeah, I can give you the example of the what we now call international services, right? Mm-hmm. Which is non the non manufacturing part of the workforce, right? Okay. The, the the general the general model was of where the whole industrial policy had been literally based on industry. Yeah. And industry equated to and the and the whole incentive system was yeah. was manufacturing yeah. and the grants and financial incentives were for plant machinery equipment. Yes. Right? Yeah. Uh, and then 
so everything and most people and the banks and the policymakers, industry meant manufacturing. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So but what we saw when we do we kept doing our analytics was that that was a decreasing share of the workforce in the international yeah. companies. What was increasing was marketing, you know, design, uh, customer support, all these other things. And the actual manufacturing element was, was reducing. So it was yeah. the ancillary services around the main manufacturing were becoming as important. Can you elaborate a bit more? Give us an example of how you convinced the Irish government to move the grants away from plants and equipment to headcount. Yes. What was the research process yes. behind that? Well, traditionally, the, the, the entire industrial policy and, and incentives were modeled on the traditional concept of what's an industry. Hmm. It's a manufacturing industry. It has a big building. It has, yeah. it has plant and its equipment and it makes things. So we had capital grants for plant and equipment and buildings. Yeah. Uh, what the idea realized from its re- research and scanning of the changes in the composition of the workforce internationally yeah. was that the actual manufacturing component of the workforces was declining and what you might call the non-manufacturing yeah. element was increasing. Yeah. So so the... the uh, uh, and this basically started in the mid-70s, but it, ca- it, it, it became real mm. when we in- persuaded the department and the government to pass mm. a piece of legislation in 1981, okay, yeah. which is basically called Industrial Development Employment mm. um, Act, grants act right mm-hmm. and the reason it was called that was that if you yeah. were a computer a computer a software company which was mm. again a new concept what is a software company yeah. and and you you just wanted to be uh, recruit a lot of people in a modern office or purpose building and you didn't have heavy plant and equipment we didn't have the incentives yeah. to, to 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 encourage the improve the recruitment of those highly paid highly skilled people so out of all of that, two things happened. One, we persuaded the government that we needed what was called employment grants. And the second thing is we we had to figure out a way of how do you promote these amorphous, what might call international services in non-manufacturing. So we, we did a lot of stratified analysis that said, okay, what, what are the elements, parts of a company or the parts of the services that are mobile will establish in Ireland, have high quality em- employment, and mm-hmm. can export and create export revenue. Mm-hmm. So we ended up in, or initially with identifying, you know, a very specific number of things like um, software, which was mm-hmm. new. Because this is 1970s yeah, now. 1970, yeah, 1970, early 80s. Yeah. Right? Computer yeah. science, publishing, distribution, customer support, a whole series of things. Yeah. Uh, and again, in the classic sort of idea manner, then having identified the segments that we believed were mm-hmm. uh, mobile, um, we targeted the companies. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I mean, if, if I remember distinctly our very, very first promotion internationally of this new sector, and we weren't sure at all how it would work, <laughs> was in Ricky's Marriott's in California. And uh, we had some eminent people like uh, Professor Ed Walsh of uh, Limerick University with us. And we were promoting the concept that Ireland had, you know, very highly skilled people mm-hmm. that we, we could support these service companies. Uh, that we had good telecommunications yeah. um, uh, and that you could create successful in businesses. So and so that was one of the most defining changes in the whole of the history of industrial development. And that came that came from the fact that the IDA 
had its finger on the pulse and was saw what was happening, and secondly was analysing and scanning the trends internationally. So today, the majority of the IDA projects each year and the yeah. majority of the employment is actually what's, quote, called international services. But the genesis of international services is exactly what I've said to you. Yeah, That's brilliant. Absolutely. So it's so interesting that we, you know, Dublin right now is a technological hub. But even going back 50 years, it started off with analyzing the data and figuring out the trends and what would the future look like. Yeah. And then building on that and then working on that yeah. and creating policies based on yes. that. And, and I, I get great pride that the idea I had uh, that we were a small country. Yeah. Like we're, you look at the map. Ireland is not a natural centre for these industries at all. Yeah. But I get great pride of the fact that, that we collectively used our brains to figure yeah. out something. There's one thing I, I'm really intrigued with, um, Podrick, is that you are a man that is heralding in ways the AI revolution. What would you say about AI now if you're in IDA? How would you use it more? Well, what I would be fairly certain of is that that IDA is is already tracking the emerging companies in AI across the world and all the different elements, whether okay. it's ro- robotics, machine learning, predictive analysis, um, um, that it's already doing that. And uh, and it's supporting some of these companies already. But I, 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 would, I would be fairly sure... Uh, that when its new five-year strategy comes out in uh, the start of the, uh, of the year, hmm. that AI will figure prominently in it, and 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 that they will do what they've always done, which is they've decided on the targets, on the sorry, on the sector, the subsectors, the niches, hmm. the companies in those niches, where they are, hmm. and then go after them, hmm. and. If they're true to form, which I have no doubt they will be, mm. they they will succeed in getting the emerging leaders of mm. those sectors and subsectors into Ireland at an early stage. So, if you look at the whole pattern of the uh, the electronic industry, the apples, the um, now the uh, um, the intels, the whole pharmaceutical industry, the whole uh, financial services industry. Uh, the whole uh, international services area, uh, shared services. If you look at all those sectors, the wave after wave of them, yeah. and sorry, the digital, digital, mm-hmm. the digital companies of of Facebook, Twitter, Google, Google, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. They didn't happen by accident. Mm-hmm. There's a series of successive waves, and I have no doubt that the next wave will be uh, the very subsectors in the AI intelligence. So just my, I want to know your views on how AI and whole the startup sector in Ireland is different than in California or in America. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm speaking to that to some extent from somebody who's familiar with venture capital because hmm. I've, I'm involved with the Bank of Ireland Venture Capital Funds and I actually chaired for five years complete high you know, risk, pure early stage startup equity fund. You know, we, we invest pure risk money between 100,000 and half a million in okay. complete startups. Uh, now, they tend to be in technology sectors and mm-hmm. uh, and so forth. But nevertheless, the, the ability to accumulate capital is much slower. Mm. We're obviously more conservative mm. as compared with the American system mm. where they want to have a world 
winner from day one. So mm. you can have the same idea mm. in the United States, and and if you get venture capital behind it in in, yeah. in Silicon Valley, I mean they want to be global and they'll pump billions into it, yeah. and so forth on a scale obviously that we 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 can't you know yeah. succeed with. I mean, to some extent, I had a bit of a personal experience with a similar thing myself, where I chaired a company called Winnie Technology, yes, yes. which was. Um, it 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 was one of the fir first and before Uber and before Halo and before my taxi, yeah. uh, we we had uh, found that you could use your mobile phone mm. uh, and to and to locate a taxi using the mobile phone cell system, mm -hmm. which as you move around, and we had developed a whole software. We'd actually invested money and in special um, special. Um, uh, uh, microprocessors yeah. and about 400 taxis in Dublin. You know okay. what I mean? That that could could manage all this. And we were about to launch uh, in Dublin uh, on Winnie Technology and the, the taxis had been in to get the the, the chip put into their the special chip put into their into their meters right. and the next thing Halo came along mm. with almost endless resources mm. yeah. uh, and then my taxi came along and now free now came along, so uh, we've we pulled out of Ireland, and yeah. basically the scale of funding, which an Uber and so forth could you of can't course, match yeah. it. So now, I mean, our chief executive, I no longer the chairman of the company, but the chief executive, he's focused on developing in in mid cities like in America, like Ohio or Columbus, okay. a system that will appeal to the traditional taxi company who okay. feels threatened. By the Ubers and the the lifts and yeah. the my taxis of this world, but it's a it's a first. I mean, it's it, to me it was a very personal example of, of an Uber which has never made money, yeah, and which has billions into it, yeah, uh, and trying to compete with that. You know what I mean? Even though the idea yeah. was similar, yeah, and in fact the software, yeah, was probably superior in our company. Because yeah. the big countries like Uber, I mean, they have so much money, they just rattle along and, you know, so forth. Talk to us about the speed of change and some of the examples that you have seen yourself, how it's wiped out some companies, as we've referred to, or it's enhanced going to the market for others. Um, you spoke about a company that you mentor with. A yeah. Korean uh, company, Shehan yeah. Media. Yes, um, a very interesting, I think, example of the emergence of... Um, and a brilliant idea, one of yeah. the first in the world to deal with the whole issue of um, access for people with disabilities, mobility access into public places, in, yeah. in, including hotels. And um, a friend of mine, Noel Ryan, who is a, in a wheelchair herself, I mean, saw this, saw this that persons with disabilities are growing part of the international tourism market. So it's yeah. a growing tourism market. So yeah. her idea as a, she had empathy obviously herself as a disabled person with this, was to um, develop a, an app that mm. dis disabled people, if they were visiting Dublin, they could check the app to see different uh, hotels or um, uh, public places or public transport was yes. accessible to transfer. Uh, and then as you know, in many cases, she, she was working on developing the technology. And then there's always the question, you know, how do you get remunerated? Initially, she thought that she'd have a subscriber base yeah. of disabled people across the world. Yeah. And then she she succeeded in becoming 
part of the Enterprise Ireland New Frontiers Programme and then into the National um, Digital Research Centre. And and she got she worked with her business partner Stephen, who's also disabled, and they pivoted the whole thing now, and it's called um, Mobility Mo- Mojo. And what they're offering now is not directly at the people with disabilities, yeah. but with the hotel groups, um, yeah. to give them a much more sophisticated rating yeah. about dis- disabilities. So under say a access, uh, the, the bedroom, the bathroom. All the different elements of the hotel, they have multiple scores and they, they have scores, an independent, yeah. so like they independently rate yeah. the access uh, and score the access of the of the hotel group. And that now increasingly uh, on, under the section on um, access yeah. uh, is is a feature. And so, yeah. so, so, so their client now is not the individual disabled yeah. person, it's the hotel groups who have a strong interest because it's, it, there's a growing sense of awareness of this of course, and, and yeah. of the need from the point of view of equality yeah. of uh, so, of access for disabled people and not a general thing to say, oh yeah, this hotel is, uh, we no problem with, that, with yeah. disabled access. So it's, it's a really interesting thing. And that is a global business. Yeah, That's of course. a global business. So now we do want to touch on the disadvantages or the fear around AI. So we would love to get your viewpoints on that. AI at its most exotic esoteric levels, namely simulating the human brain creates a sort of a a sort of a certain dread in in humans and there's a certain primeval dread that they're going to replace us. Uh, The human brain has 86 billion neurons, so it's not going to happen any day soon. And and to some extent, it's not about simulating the entire brain. It's about it's about simulating certain activities that mm-hmm. can be productive and so forth. So, if I mean, I'm a huge believer in the benefits of technology to human welfare. Yeah. So, in and if you think of all of the drudgery over the years of people in the 19th century drudging, adding up columns of things which are all now by, done by spreadsheets, you know, like it's mm-hmm. and reconciling different batches of figures and so forth. So, I mean, we're so used to it, yeah. to it happening. But in, there are whole areas of human life where there are, there are for, for, obviously in health, the health is a huge area, I believe, where the analytics and, and um, diagnostics mm. um, and the combination of algorithms and diagnostics uh, will be of huge benefit to mm. people in, people in their health. There are there is a fear. I mean, it is predicted, for example, that uh, you know within the next ten years that maybe fifty percent of clerical opu- occupations, of course, yeah, you know, yeah. will disappear. And that's and that's. I mean, that is a fear. Yeah. But and in a way, and there's the challenge to companies is how they manage it, yeah. because there there are two things in companies. One, very often the processes that people are involved in, they're they're boring and they're they're not making the best use of their talent. And very often they're not giving the best service to, mm-hmm. to the customer. So, very, I mean, some of the experiences with, say, customers automating customer service instead of somebody ringing up and, and the person yeah, answers right. say, oh, I'll have to call somebody about that and the person is away or they can't get them, that there's yeah. automated responses. Uh, so, I mean, the predictions are, as you know, that, that in many areas, even in, including a lot of 
the legal business. Of course, where yeah. there's a lot of repetition, a lot of accounting things, is yeah, another one. Accounting, yeah. Insurance claims yeah. and so forth. That in general, what's called we call clerical today is is going to is I think going to be sub, sub, substantial change. And the challenge for society is actually to manage that so that you do address the fears. Because if you look at every wave of technology, going back to the Luddites, but ultimately, if it's managed properly, it makes people's lives better and more productive. And in any event, I mean, even if you leave aside AI, increasingly, people are moving to, in this part of the world, to a four-day week uh, on the basis that if it's organized properly, that it can be more productive. Yeah. Right? yeah. So there are huge changes. Now, there, there are equally huge risks and dangers in it. Yeah. And, you know, one of them is if you take, when you come to decision-making that affects the citizen, mm-hmm. whether it's a decision on on your, your insurance claim or whether you, you're going to get a mortgage mm-hmm. or a loan from the bank, and if it's taken over by algorithms mm. uh, which have their own biases into them. For example, mm. you could have algorithms with hidden biases against women, for example, of which course, wouldn't be yeah. unknown. And yeah. you probably never get to the bottom of that unless you can. So, Because algorithms are written by people, they're by humans by, who are by, inherently biased. Large, large degree by men. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So there you so, go. So yeah. I'm, 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 but biases are built of into course, human yes. things. Yeah. So yeah. I believe that part of the whole AI thing in activities where it affects the humans and so forth will be much greater transparency about yeah. about uh, algorithms. Yeah. Um, and then, I mean, I mean, if if you look at the danger of too much trust yeah. in AI and 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 artificial intelligence, is is the tragic example of the the Boeing Max seven thirty seven airplanes, where yeah. where they built in a sort of sophisticated uh, system, artificial intelligence, which is yeah. a classic artificial, where where the system is making decisions, not the pilots, and the yeah. pilots don't even know. So there are real issues. So I do want to ask one question, which we ask all our guests. Yeah. If you could have, you could invite three people alive yeah. over to your house for dinner. So this is one dinner with yeah. three guests. Who would they be and why? Laura Kinsberg of the BBC. Okay. Uh, a brilliant, brilliant political commentator who is just a genius. John Snow of Newsnight, who is an amazing, empathetic um, uh, newscaster mm-hmm. and Mrs. Merkel who came from yes. East Germany yeah. and lived under East Germany to become probably the most formidable uh, political leader Either. in Europe for the last 20 years or whatever time she's been there. We will miss her when she retires yeah. for sure. Yeah, I mean it was very interesting last week when the British media were briefing against her that Boris Johnson had a phone call with her and and that she was, you know, very arrogant or whatever. But apparently she had a 40-minute interview with him and she explained to him in detail the implications of his proposal for the Good Fight Agreement, for peace in Northern Ireland, for the effect on the border. <laughs> she, she took him through in very in micro detail. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> the British Prime Minister. A fascinating account by our very special guest, Podrick White, on analytics in use and best practices over five decades span, believe it or not. Podrick shared his experience of the use of data analytics in the IDA in the 1970s for scanning emerging trends globally. 
to his views on AI and how it embraces strategy. It's the new battleground of technology for the future, he says. To how Ireland can be positioned as a leader in AI and the new technologies. A far cry from the bygone protectionist era of the 1930s to early 50s, and more in line with Ken Whitaker's strategy of the 1950s, a vision towards bringing foreign direct investment to our shores. Such an example was Intel, one of Porig's victories as former MD of IDA, proof that effective data use can benefit and revolutionise an economy. And of course, his thoughts on AI pitfalls, such as placing too much trust in AI, a tragic example being the Boeing Max 37 planes, leaving the systems to make decisions and not the pilots involved. Porrick White, it has been an honour. Thank you on behalf of all involved in the production and delivery of Where the Needle Lands. Till the next time.